Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I am your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. Howdy, howdy, y'all. Welcome to Catholics with Bibles. I'm sitting here this morning with a hot cup of joe. If you never drank Mystic Monk coffee, your, your life is not as good as it could be. <laughs> Mystic Monk coffee is muy delicioso. It's amazing. And some of the best coffee I've ever had. And also, my wife's awesome. And for my birthday, she got me this French press portable coffee mug thing. Awesome. You put the grounds in and it's like a travel coffee mug, but then you put the hot water in, you let it steep for however long you want, and then you press it down so it's like a walking French press. And it's amazing. And that's what I'm drinking out of right now. Because I'm a little tired today. It's the morning and babies don't always sleep the best, but man, they're cute. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, let's, uh, let's go ahead and, and dive into the Greek word of the day. Greek word of the day is a word you might have heard before. It's a Delphoi. So a Delphoi could be translated a few different ways. Oftentimes it's translated as brothers or brethren. But in Greek, there is no word for like cousin. So it also could be translated as cousin. And the reason we know this is because in the Greek Septuagint in the Old Testament, Lot, who is Abraham's nephew, is in Greek, it's, it's a Delphoi. So it's, it's the word that's used uh, to describe Lot's nephew, so it means it can mean nephew, it can mean cousin, it can mean brother. It's like brethren, it's like family, right? It's like a your, your brethren, um, their immediate family. And so, interesting word in a few different ways. I think a lot of the times when our non-Catholics uh, friends point to Jesus and they say, "Oh, look, it says he has brothers and sisters, and like they came with Mary and stuff," and you know, look, it's it's just right there. And, and uh, well. The word in Greek is actually Adolfoi, so it's like brethren. So we know that uh, Mary was a virgin before Jesus and remained a virgin after Jesus, so she had no more children. Now, there is a theory that maybe St. Joseph was married before and had some kids before um, his marriage to Mary. It's a theory. I'm not a huge fan of it, but it, it's a theory that's out there. So that theoretically, Jesus could have, like, half-siblings. Uh, well... And he's not biologically related to Joseph, so it's like step siblings, I guess. Uh, but anyway, we're not going to dive into like if Jesus had brothers and sisters and the arguments and stuff behind that, even though that is a fascinating topic, and we'll, we'll cover that in a, a later podcast. Uh, but I wanted to talk about Delphoi. Uh, it's Greek word of the day. It's important to distinguish because when you see brothers or sisters or cousins or nephews or anything in the Old or New Testament— it's a Delphoi, same word, uh, because in Greek there was just no, there was no word for, for cousin, so they just used it for everything. Today, we are going to be diving into Romans 12. It might sound a bit random because, you know, we haven't been studying Romans or anything like that, but the reason I want to dive into Romans 12 is to show a place in Romans where I think people should start in the sense of when they want to pray through Romans. I, I know I've I've worked through Romans a few times in various Bible studies and when I was studying in my master's and stuff like that. And it's a hard letter. It is not an easy letter to read. Paul is a genius on multiple, multiple levels. And without a more nuanced understanding of what Paul is talking about, I can imagine and I've known people who 
I've tried to like, oh, I'm going to pray through the entire New Testament. Or I'm going to read through the Bible. And, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that all goes pretty well. Acts goes okay. And then you get to Romans and they're like, dude, no idea what this dude's talking about. <laughs> and so just a you know, kind of the breakdown of Romans. Romans 1 through 8 is the first section and it's kind of the most theologically dense section of Romans. And then 9 through 11 is this middle section where um, it's the famous olive tree analogy and uh, Paul's going to talk about how all of Israel can be saved. He's going to talk about Israel a lot and that's that middle section. But then he segues at the end of Romans 11, the beginning of Romans 12. And Romans 12 through 15 is the last section and then in 15 to 16 is the conclusion. But Romans 12 through 15 is really the, the call to Christian living, the call to Christian discipleship to gospel living. And I think this is a really great place for people to, if they want to pray through Romans, but they get lost in the weeds of, you know, the theology of Romans 1 through 8 and even Romans 9 through 11, um, then this is a really great place to start. And so just some background before we dive into Romans 12, because it's always good to have the background and context. Romans 1 through 8 is setting up the, it begins by setting up the predicament of the Gentiles, namely that they should have known God through their reason, uh, that there was a God through their reason, but the, through the fall and everything, they you know, gave themselves over to wickedness, to sinfulness, to idol worship and all that stuff. But then he pivots to the predicament of the Israelites because he's talking to Jews and Gentiles in, the, in Rome. So the Israelites, even though the, they converted to Christianity, aren't held in greater esteem in God's eyes because God's not partial. He talks about that as well. And so they're actually held more accountable because the Israelites should have known better, yet they still fell. You read the Old Testament, Israel falls time and time again into idol worship, into idolatry, into various pagan cults and practices. And so uh, they were actually held more accountable than the Gentiles because they did know better, yet they they fell anyway. And then we, we go on through Romans to talk about um, the theology of sot- you know, soteriology, uh, which is how, how are we saved, you know? Um, and it's through, we get to the, you know, the climax, Romans 8, and, you know, it's through being conformed to the image of the sun, you know, and it's it's that whole section. And it's really beautiful, amazing, you know, not that we love God, but that God loved us. He's in his only son to to die for our sins. So, and then 9 through 11, we get to the, the passage, like I just mentioned, where he's talking about Israel in particular, and he quotes the Old Testament more times in chapters 9 through 11 than any other letter, like three chapters in any other letter. So Paul really, really hammering down on the Old Testament quotes to kind of prove his points, like a good rabbi. And so then after all that's said and done, we get to Romans 12. And we're going to only talk about not all of Romans 12 today because that would take a very long time. But we're going to glance over a few parts, but uh, verses 1 and 2 are really important. So 12.1. And I'm reading off the ESV. It's my Greek-English translation, so you might have a slightly different translation, but uh, you'll get the gist. So 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, that Adelphoi, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So verses one and two is kind of like Paul's 
thesis statement, if you will, of everything he's about to talk about. Um, he, he's going to spend chapters 12 through 15 kind of showing you what this looks like and also showing you, uh, kind of breaking it open more for, for his readers. And Scott Hahn actually points out a few different things in his commentary on the Romans, which is a fantastic commentary. Uh, if you have been wanting to study Romans and haven't been able to find a commentary, Scott Hahn's commentary on the letter of Paul to the Romans is great. It is not super academic. It is very insightful. It's very nuanced. Um, and it's a great place for anybody who doesn't want a really super academic approach to scripture, but at the same time wants to study scripture well. So Scott Hahn's uh, commentary on Romans, very, very good resource uh, if you want more uh, information and want more help studying the letter to, of Paul to the Romans. So Scott Hahn points out a few different things about this thesis statement. And the first thing he points out is that for Paul, this gospel living is intrinsically liturgical. You know, how the heck did you get there from, from what we just read? Well, if you look at the verse 1, he says, By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So where do you offer sacrifice? Especially in the Old Testament, right? You offer sacrifice in the temple. In the temple is where you offer sacrifice. And that's actually where the northern Israelites got in trouble and led to their exile is because they didn't want to worship in the temple. They didn't want to travel to Jerusalem. So they set up their own altars. And that is what led them into a bad relationship with God. They broke their covenant fidelity with God because they were only supposed to worship at the Holy of Holies in the, in the temple of Jerusalem. So you worship in the temple by offering sacrifices. And for the new covenant, you know, we're not called to offer animal sacrifices. That's not, that's not what we do. We're called to offer ourselves. As Paul also says elsewhere that you know, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. So this gospel living is liturgical. Why? Because we're still called to offer sacrifices. We are still called to sacrifice our own selves. But this isn't just an individual sacrifice only. That's the second thing Scott Hahn points out. He says, Scott Hahn says that it's also this section, talking about gospel living, is also intrinsically ecclesial, namely church-oriented or body of Christ-oriented. Once again, you're like, you know, where the heck do you see that? We'll go into that same exact text, the yeah, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Well, bodies is plural, but sacrifice is singular. So while we are all offering our own sacrifices in our own ways, it is ultimately one sacrifice, singular, because we're all part of this church. We're all part of the body of Christ. So it's liturgical in the sense that we're all offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. Our lives are a, of service to God. We have renounced the world and are now pursuing Christ. And, but we're doing it, even though in one sense we are doing it as individuals, more importantly, it is only meritorious. It only means anything 
if we do it in union with the body of Christ. Because we're saved through Christ. We're not saved on our own. We cannot enter heaven without Christ. And you are only a part of Christ if you're a part of his mystical body, the church. So for Paul, gospel living, because remember this is his thesis statements, statement. Gospel living is one, liturgical, because it's about sacrifice. And it's also ecclesial, because while we are many bodies, it is one sacrifice. And this sacrifice is holy, acceptable, right? It's holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Spiritual worship. And so Paul says, do not be conformed to this age or this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So when you offer your body as a living sacrifice with the church, with the body of Christ, do not be conformed to this age or this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? You know, I think a lot of times we look at text and we kind of just accept the text at face value. And there's some, there's some good in that. Um, but I think you can learn more and study more when you start asking these questions. Well, why? Why does my mind need to be renewed? Well, for Paul, he says it right there in the next sentence, next section. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. So why does your mind need to be renewed? Because you are not empowered to perfectly discern the will of God yet. And why do you need to discern the will of God? Well, so you can do the will of God. You can't act unless you know. Even if you don't know the full picture, you know part of it. Or you know what you're trying to accomplish, at least. So for the Christian, we have to know what the sacrifice of our body is supposed to be. Because it's going to look different for you and for me. So we have to beg the Holy Spirit to renew our minds. To soften our hearts. So we may discern what is the will of God. And once we have discerned it, we can then act accordingly. So we can discern what is good acceptable and perfect. So this is Paul's thesis statement. This is the, his, state, his, his two sentences, two verses here, that he's going to spend the rest of 12 through 15 uh, giving you examples of, showing you what that looks like. It's a call to holiness. It's a call to gospel living. And a lot can be said about it, but before that, I think it's a cool place to kind of pivot to some Aquinas. Good old Aquinas. Um, you know, I, one of the things I said pretty early on, maybe the first or second podcast, is I I love the saints. I love Thomas Aquinas. And there's a lot of really great podcasts about dogmatic theology or theology in general. But we do focus specifically on biblical theology, on, on the Bible. Uh, that being said, Thomas Aquinas has brilliant commentaries on Scripture. And he's difficult to read at times. But just, just brilliant. Um, Matt Frad's podcast, Pints with Aquinas. I think Matt Frad actually does a very good job breaking down Aquinas. And I would never try to do what he does because I think he has a really, really good thing going over there. 
at, at Pints of the Aquinas. So, hey, Matt Fred, if you hear this, what up? You're doing a good job. Um, <laughs> uh, somebody share this with Pints of the Aquinas, please. And it's like, hey, what's up, Matt? Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, Aquinas talks about the this idea of the virtue of religion. Because when I say that for Paul, gospel living is liturgical and ecclesial, I think for non-Catholics, it can sound uh, wrong or intimidating or weird because not all Protestants, don't get me wrong, I don't, I don't want to throw a blanket statement because there are some Protestant denominations that are very church-oriented, body of Christ-oriented, ecclesial, um, and liturgical, uh, but not all, especially non-denominational. Uh, Christians, it, it's more individualized, um, and so it's important here to talk about this idea of religion, to be religious. For a lot of people in modern society, they can say, oh, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. <laughs> or uh, they say, uh, you know, I believe in God, but I'm not religious. And I think they've, they're not using the same definition as the churches. And maybe you don't even know what the definition of church is using. So I think for modern people, a lot of the times they view this word religion as a belief in an abstract idea or deity or spirit or universal energy or whatever. That's not what Aquinas means by religion. So religion's a virtue, which means a, it's a solid, good habit, which means it has to be a tangible action of some kind in some way. So we have the four cardinal virtues, Right. We have justice, prudence, temperance, fortitude. So those are the four virtues that all other virtues hinge upon besides the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. And so you have to figure out, okay, so if religion isn't a cardinal virtue, which virtue then does it hinge upon out of those four? And Aquinas says it, it's closely related to the virtue of justice. So the virtue of justice is to give another their due. So this, there's human and divine justice. Human justice, somebody, uh, if I'm at the store and I want a candy bar for a dollar, it is just for me to give the store one dollar for that one dollar candy bar. It is, it is just because they are owed that one dollar for the one dollar candy bar. Um, and, and when it comes to God, though, it, it's a bit more nuanced, a bit trickier. And this is where the virtue of religion comes in. So we have to think about this. If, if justice is giving others their due, and we know this applies to fellow humans relatively straightforward, it has to also apply to God. So we have to give God his due. And I think a lot of times we fail to grasp how much gravity is behind that statement. Because we owe God in, in two major respects. The first is the fact that if God stopped thinking about you for one millisecond, less than that, if, if there's any moment in time that God stopped willing you to exist, you would literally cease to exist and it had been as if you had never existed. Because He, everything is made from nothing. So if God doesn't want you to exist, you would literally just stop existing. So in one sense, we owe God for the fact that we even exist. He holds everything in existence by his, by, his very, by his very self. And in another sense, if you're a baptized Christian, 
that not only does God will you to exist, but he also dwells in your soul and is offering you divine sonship and salvation, which apart from him we would not be able to have. Which is an amazing gift, an indescribable gift, uh, a gift that we can never pay back. So both of these things that we owe, owe to God are things that are of infinite value that we can never hope or fathom or dream of paying back in any way. Yet we're called to try. We're called to do our best to give everything back to God. Give everything back to God. And so this is a virtue of religion, is acknowledging the fact that we owe God everything. And for Aquinas, he has, under this virtue of religion, he has two ways in which to give God his due. I'm just going to talk about one, but the two ways are the exterior acts and the interior acts. And I want to talk about the interior acts for just a second. And like good old Aquinas fashion, he breaks an interior acts into two different things. We have devotion and prayer. Devotion and prayer, I think, are two words that we hear all the time. Yet there's a big difference for Aquinas. Devotion is connected to the will, whereas prayer is connected to the intellect. And for Aquinas, devotion is actually more important than prayer because devotion is actually when your will is involved and you are being willingly obedient to the Father, to God. And that, that's an internal reality that you are living and you are willing your devotion to the God who holds you in existence and that offers you salvation. And prayer is more of an intellectual pursuit, right? Because your intellect is engaged in prayer unless you're given the gift of contemplation, but that's a separate issue. Your intellect is involved, you're thinking, you're meditating, you're conversing with the Holy Spirit, Jesus, it's the Father. And so this internal, these internal acts are necessary because we have to give God everything. We can't just go through the motions and only do exterior acts without our interior selves being fully captivated and fully engaged because we're body and soul. So St. Paul, going back to Romans 12, we, our bodies must be a living sacrifice because we're a part of this liturgical, ecclesial community. And that's why in the Mass, when after the offertory and the priest says, you know, we offer, we raise up our hearts to the Lord, right? Well, what do you raise up? In the Old Testament, you raised up sacrifices. And so after the offertory, when we give of ourselves monetarily, bread and wine go up, we also give our, give ourselves, we give our hearts to God as a sacrifice, interior and exterior, so that we, our minds may be renewed we may discern the will of God and may do the will of God. Do the will of God. So Romans 12 through 15, I think if you've been wanting to pray with Romans, but you get stuck in the weeds of the first 11 chapters, um, you know, Romans 12 through 15 is a really great place to start. It's really beautiful. I think it's pretty straightforward. And I think every verse has something you can chew on. But if you do want to, dive in. Don't, don't be wrong. You can definitely pray through Romans 1 through 11, but it's harder. It's trickier because you have to be, understand what he's talking about. Then I would encourage you to pick up Scott Hahn's commentary on Romans. It's a fantastic, fantastic read. 
and then from your intellectual understanding, it'll your prayer will grow. Because remember, you can pray wrong. People can pray wrong if they their intellect it doesn't understand. So form your intellect to help grow in your prayer so that you may be devoted to our loving Father. So Romans 12, hope you all enjoyed this episode of Catholics with Bibles, and I will see y'all next time. Hey guys, so thanks so much again for joining me with Catholics with Bibles. Um, I really love praying through Romans. I hope this episode helps you to pray through Romans and to understand Romans a little bit better. Once again, please subscribe if you haven't. Like, share, talk about it with your friends and family. I'm going to drink more coffee out of my Mystic Monk French Press. (laughs) All right, y'all. God bless. See you next week.